If you guys are into shooting the copper bullets, man, I got a great deal for you. We have partnered with Barnes Bullets. They are world famous, known for that Vore TX rifle, the deadliest, most accurate hunting loads on the planet. I like this company, guys, because I have a personal connection to these guys. On uh, Down in central Utah, uh, my dad's got this ranch, and uh, on the way to the ranch, you drive past this uh, Barnes Bullets factory and it's it's a really cool building just kind of out in the middle of nowhere so i know them well these all copper bullets provide destructive power double diameter expansion maximum weight retention and devastating energy transfer all with excellent accuracy it's a great choice for western big game game hunters and shooters everywhere so check them out at barsbullets.com and let me know what you guys think i appreciate it you've heard my silencer central ads i'm sure And I don't know if you have reached out and contacted them yet. If you're interested in a silencer, though, man, this is the way to go. Silencer Central from the start to finish, because it's quite the process. If you've never gotten a suppressor for one of your rifles, you've got to go through and do the ATF paperwork and the background checks and all that kind of stuff. But the cool part is, is Silencer Central takes care of it all. It's a several-month process, and so what's cool about it is if you don't want to drop all that money right at the top uh, end of this whole process, you just get a hold of them, and you can do like a payment plan while they're taking care of all the paperwork on the back end. I have the Banish 30, uh, and this thing is awesome. I've never used one of these before, so I'm like learning as as I go along, but what I what I was getting at is from start to finish, Silencer Central has been some of the most amazing people I've ever worked with through the process. They treated me like I was family, and I really appreciated it. You guys should check them out, and you can call them at 866-891-4494 or check it out at silencercentral.com. It will be worth your time, I promise. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Tine Studio and brought to you by Eastman's Hunting Journals. And guys, I am uh, glad to be here this week. Thanks for tuning in. Um, I'm pretty excited about this uh, this guest because speaking of Eastman's Hunting Journals, we've got the uh, one and only legendary Guy Eastman joining me this week. And we're going to have a uh, a long conversation about Eastman's hunting journals and some late November elk hunting and uh, whatever whatever else we kind of dive into. So, uh, Guy, I appreciate you joining me. How you doing? Good. How you doing, Jim? It's uh, nice to be on here. Finally, I've heard a lot about the, the podcast and listened to some episodes, and it's good to actually be here on here in person with you. 
Well, it's it's good to have you. I've been I've been bugging uh, Reekers and them over there to to let me get you on the show, and and they they they're like guarding you or something. Like don't yeah. don't expose yourself to that Huntsman guy. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. They never told me that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what would be super interesting? Um, I I've had this conversation with Ike, but I I'd love to get your perception of kind of the history of Eastman's hunting journals, because I'm, I'm a guy, I grew up out West. Uh, I, I spent my own money when I was like 14 years old to get a subscription to Eastman's hunting, uh, magazine. And I remember when the, the bow hunter journals came out, I, I, uh, subscribed to that. I was a little bit older by then, but, um, so it's it's just uh it's weird how things work out guy uh you know i've been a i've been an eastman's fan for a long time so um kind of walk us through your history with eastman's and and how this whole thing came together into what it is now uh well i you probably heard the long and short of it from from ike hopefully the story's not too different between the two of us but <laughs> um <laughs> you know my grandfather my grandfather started not this company, but in the industry in 1957, a long time ago. Everybody knows that whole story probably. And then my dad started the magazine's portion of it, the publishing part of it in 1987 when Ike and I were just kids. So I would have been, what, uh, I'd have been 15 years old. Uh-huh. And they just started out as a newsletter, of course, then back then, and then just kind of grew into a full fledged magazine. Mostly when I was in high school and college, so I wasn't really paying that much attention to it. I was doing, you know, my own thing like all teenage boys do. And then after college, I went into a different field for a while. And then after about three or four years, came back to the business, um, back into the business and worked with my dad, my mom, um, in the business, and that was oh boy, time flies. That was in about nineteen ninety nine or ninety eight. I think it was nineteen ninety eight. We started one of the first things we did when I came back in here. We started EBJ, the Bow Hunting Journal, which you've mentioned. So that mm-hmm. was nineteen ninety nine. TV show and the Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal started the same year, nineteen ninety nine. So. Yeah, that sounds that sounds about right, guy. Because I, yeah. I was I was in them. Uh, they had stationed me out in North Carolina in the Marines, and and I started getting the bow hunting magazine. Yeah, and my Marine buddies that were on the uh, East Coast that were kind of from the East Coast or the Southeast, they were looking at some of the imagery in the magazine, and they're like, they were blown away at the landscape of the West because this is back before social media and all that. You know, where where people see this a little bit more often, they just had no real exposure to the vastness of the, of the back country in the West. And they were seeing it for the first time in these journals. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of the whole gist of what made the magazines, what they are is my dad started them actually a, uh, off of a lecture he did in Pennsylvania. And he was doing a lot of work with my grandfather actually for his films back in the East coast in Pennsylvania and, uh, Michigan, Ohio, that, that area. And the guys in Pennsylvania all wanted to had a dream to come out west and hunt elk. They all wanted to shoot an elk, but they didn't know how to do it. I mean, some of them went with outfitters or whatnot, but they were completely blown away at the, the entire concept of being able to come out 
on your own and hunt mule deer, elk, or mostly elk is what they were after. But some of the guys were mule deer, you know, aficionados too, but mostly elk. And, and so that's kind of how the magazine got its roots was helping people who aren't from the West kind of uh, learn how to do it and figure out how to come out here and crack the code to do it on their own. Of course, now we have the internet that can do that real easily for you. But yeah. you know, back then you had to apply on paper applications, send in a cashier's check, know how the system worked, what areas are better, what areas have public land. You know, it was really, really an unknown and, and quite the puzzle for, for most people if you didn't live out here and know it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you? So that's kind of what the roots of the magazine was mostly was just an informational source. It still is today. It's just different than, a, than what it started mostly because our, our society and the way we get our information has changed so much. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I, I got a question on that. That's kind of, it's not totally off topic, but the, with the, what is your take guy on the, the they're introducing elk into several of the kind of eastern seaboard states. Do do you feel like some of these numbers of elk that are going, you know, back east where where they they didn't have this opportunity before, these herds are growing, they're starting to get tags, things like that. Is that going to relieve some of the pressure in the west for some of these folks that come come out west to hunt elk, do you feel like or what what are your thoughts on that? I, you know, I- your gut instinct is to think, oh, yeah, well, they have elk in Pennsylvania or Kentucky or Wisconsin, Minnesota, all these places, Michigan, and that'll people want to hunt elk at home, and they, and they will. But I think that it's just so limited. There's so much uh, demand for that. And I still really believe a lot of guys just they want to come out west and kill an elk in the mountains, right? I mean, yeah. you know, they'll hunt in their own state back there, but it, it's just different, even though the elk are the same. You know, so much of elk hunting is about the country, the scenery, the experience, as you know. And I think the West still just holds the key to all that. Yeah. I think there's... Unfortunately, for a lot of us, if you see a lot of demand out here, I don't think it's going to go down, I guess, is my my answer. Yeah, I I, I tend to agree. I tend to agree. I, I was... My initial thought when I started kind of reading into that and, and um, understanding it a little bit more, I was like, you know... Maybe this is going to help because if you can if you can get a tag in Pennsylvania, it'd sure as heck be a lot cheaper to go to Pennsylvania if you live somewhere you know on the eastern seaboard that than Colorado or Wyoming or Idaho or something. But I I uh, I ran into this guy this last September. In fact, I ran into two guys, and there was we were kind of working our way up to the top of where these three or four different drainages met. And I, I'd never, I, I didn't know them. I could just hear them calling for elk. And I, I knew they were hunters because they were terrible callers, to be honest with you. But <laughs> anyway, we, we all kind of merge up on the top and, and, uh, and meet. And this, this guy is from Texas, one of them. The other guy was from Wisconsin. Uh, and actually, he was a really good caller. But the, uh, the, this guy from Texas was telling me that like 40 miles down the road from where he lives in Texas, I can't remember where that was, but there's this elk ranch where you can pay to go hunt elk and he said that's actually it would have been cheaper for me to do that uh and go hunt elk on this this big ranch in texas than you know come up to idaho and pay the non-resident tag and all the travel expenses and everything and and hunt here 
but he said he's like it's it just doesn't feel like elk hunting if you're hunting elk in texas you know on these open plains and and whatnot and so i guess that makes sense i I, i'd probably tend to agree with you yeah i think so that's my initial thought on it i I, and a lot of those tags in those places they're once in a lifetime you know they're they're even more difficult and and somewhat the equivalent in a lot of ways of a sheep tag out here for for these guys you know i mean they'll hunt it once if they ever do and that's it they can never draw again so yeah it's not enough elk and they're not not enough habitat i don't think there'll ever be enough elk in those states to quench the thirst and demand for the that those the amount of hunters have uh you know i mean there's so many hunters in pennsylvania i think they have more hunters they sell more hunting licenses than the entire West combined. So there's just no oh, yeah. help to, to, you know, drop that demand. But yeah, for sure. Yeah. A lot of those States, you know, it's a big family affair, almost like NASCAR, you know, they all, even yes. grandma has a deer tag and they're, and they're out there on the family uh, homestead or whatever in Pennsylvania or Kentucky. And they're, you know, it's a big deal. And so, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, what what kind of floats your boat, guy? Guy, when it comes to hunting big game in the West, what I I know you uh, you'd gone on a moose hunt recently, which was pretty cool. Was that filmed, by the way? Yes, yeah, we filmed it. That's going to be out on uh, on off the grid, or I'm I'm sorry, the, I'll be on the grid. It'll be on, on the grid. Probably, uh, I'm guessing this winter sometime, maybe spring. Uh, who knows? Maybe summer. I, I don't know. We haven't slated the schedule for that yet, but it was it was definitely filmed for it. It took it was it was quite the hunt. It took us twenty days, or took me twenty days to finally get one. So there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of footage there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but because you and I were kind of talking about you know you coming on this show and and you're like man I'm a, I, I'm out moose hunting and so I didn't want to bug you too much because that's a big deal. Where was that? Here in Wyoming. That oh you, it was a Wyoming tag. Yeah, it's a Shires moose. So for us. Us starting last year, I think it's a no. Maybe this. I think this is the first year. It's once in a lifetime now, so yeah. I can never draw another one. But it took me twenty years to finally draw it. So yeah, yeah, been a, been a long haul. That is a long haul. But getting back to kind of what I was asking, I'm always curious about you know where where does your passion lie in terms of Western big game? What what do you prefer to chase? What what kind of gets your uh, blood pumping the most? Well, I used to be a real, really into mule deer, and I still am. I mean, that's probably my number one in a lot of respects. But I'm kind of, I'm into the sheep deal, you know, as much as a guy with without a huge checkbook can be. I'm waiting for uh, my tag in Wyoming for that. I should draw it, I think, next year. I almost mm-hmm. drew them both in the same year this year, which would have been actually not not a good plan, but. You get them when you can get them, right? But I, sure. I should draw sheep next year. So I'm I'm really into this sheep hunting um, before I get too old, which is getting to be the case sooner rather than later, I think. <laughs> For us all, man, I'm, uh, I, as the date of this recording, I'm turning 43 tomorrow, and I still can't. I, I'm still having a hard time even accepting the fact I'm in my 40s, man. <laughs> hey, I hear you. I'm going to turn 50 or 52 holy cow so yeah i'm I'm starting to feel it (laughs) especially hauling around or wrestling around that moose i thought man i'm glad i didn't take 10 more years to draw this thing god no kidding yeah it's uh every year every year it's a it's a little bit i don't know um 
it's all about preparation and and what you do throughout the rest of the year and and uh, I'll be honest with you guy I did not do what I needed to do to be prepared for elk season this year and uh, I, I had like a, a week long recovery after helping my uh, buddy pack out his elk and uh, I, I was I was struggling a little bit more than usual um, this year so I'm gonna fix that go into next season a little bit a little bit more ready a little maybe maybe a few less beers before season. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. I'm, <laughs> when I draw that sheet tag, I'll be uh, my summer will be filled with exercise. I think. Yep. Yep. Okay, so here we are. Um, we are as a date of this recording is November 9th. There are several of us, including me, who has yet to fill a, a, an elk tag this year, and uh, there are a lot of late. Elk hunts. There's there's some late archery. Um, there's there's some muzzleloader tags. I think there's still. I, I'm not sure what states this might be in, but I know, I know there's still some rifle tags out there. Uh, and and you know like like for I I had an Idaho tag this year. And if you if you don't if you don't notch a tag in September, you've got uh, I don't know four or five days in October to do it with the rifle, which I didn't hardly get an opportunity to get out there in October. But now come, I, I believe it opens on the 15th or 16th. I can go out for about a week and a half with a muzzle loader. And uh, I get a lot of questions on the show for late season taxic, or tactics to locate elk. And here's the thing. I, I don't know what to tell them. I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of experience with late season hunts uh, for, for elk. I'm usually focused pretty heavily now. Don't take this personal guy, and and I don't want to like get fired from being with the Eastman's, uh, you know, uh, family right now. Uh, but I've been addicted to whitetail hunting the last few years, and that's usually what I'm focused on in late September, or I'm sorry, late November. Um, I haven't even chased a mule deer this year, man. That's that's like not like me at all. Anyway, getting back to some of these discussions about late season archer or archery muzzleloader rifle it doesn't matter uh elk tactics do you have like an overarching you know philosophy as to how to pursue elk this late in the year and and then we can kind of dive into a, a little bit more micro type type stuff yeah i've been we have quite a few of the seasons right around where i live over here by cody that are open late season limited draw you know really good high quality tags high quality hunts and a lot, some of them go clear to the end of the year from now. And so I've, I've hunted a fair amount of those seasons. I've hunted Nevada late season. So I've, I've done a little, you know, my fair share of late season hunting. And, and I think guys make the mistake and they hunt, they try to hunt late season elk like they would in September or even the first half of October. And that's, that's where I think a lot, a lot of guys tend to fall down because they don't realize the behavioral change of the animals you know, coming from going into the rut or in the rut to post rut winter range. The, there's a two totally different uh, scenarios. And so I think when you're talking later season, which is, you know, in our country, depending on the elevation, anything after about the 25th October is late season here. That's when we really start to get our heavy snows. Uh-huh. It's all about the weather. The weather, the weather, the weather. The weather dictates everything for those animals from here until next summer, you know. And so 
you know, the, you got to really, really watch the weather and, and start to realize what the animals or what the bulls in particular are going to do, you know, with with the weather conditions you're you're faced with. I think mm-hmm. guys don't don't pay attention to that as much as they should. Do you have an opinion as to, you know, the cycle that elk get into where? You know, the bulls are kind of bachelored up most of the year. Then they, they split off. They, they go into the rut. They're fighting, uh, beating, uh, beating up each other. And then, and then the post rut kind of happens and they start kind of coming back together. Do you have an opinion as to, uh, roughly when they are bachelored back up for the year? Um, is that, I, I don't know if that's ever been discussed on this show. Yeah. You know, I think it changes a little bit with each region um, my wife's from arizona so i spent a lot of time down there talking to her brothers who are big hunters down there and it, you know for them everything happens later with that up here it happens earlier but you know at our elevation this far north which would be idaho montana wyoming parts uh-huh. of Colorado, probably you know the, i see those elk what happens they'll they'll come off they go through the rut then they'll there'll be a little bit of a lull and then they'll hit the second cycle cows and that'll last where those bulls will start traveling, but the herds are kind of broke down. It kind of gets what I call a sloppy rut. It's kind of sloppy, but they, they're still bugling and the big bulls are traveling. Great time to kill a big bull, by the way, which is, is usually about the second week, October. Second week. Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But then after that, once that's over, those bulls will go into hiding basically for about two weeks. And basically they're like, you know, like if you go to Las Vegas for too long and you come home and just want to sit in a dark, quiet room in your house for a while, because it's just <laughs> overload. Yeah. That's what they'll do. They'll just kind of hide out for uh, 10 days to two weeks in what I call pockets, little side drainages, spur drainages, tight pieces of country where it's really secluded. They'll have a little meadow or a group of meadows that they'll feed in. They have good cover. They have water there. and that's where they'll sit until the weather pushes them out of there, basically. So usually for us, it's about two weeks. So by about the last five days of October, they're being pushed out of there. And they'll kind of find each other in in little groups, bachelor groups, like pairs of bulls, sometimes three, maybe four. Usually I don't see many more than that. But once the weather starts pushing them, then those little groups will be- group up back into bigger groups like what you saw in the summer. You'll see 10, 15. 15, 20 of them together. And sometimes that doesn't happen till November. You know, it just depends again on the weather. If you're getting early snow this year, we got early snow. It happened, you know, early. Um, some years we don't see it till the 10th of November, you know, before we get the, the cold, I should say the cold. A lot of guys, the snow does affect them, but what I've, what I've seen with elk, bull elk in particular is the cold. It's the temperatures that really affect what they do. Uh, as much of the snow or more yeah yeah for they sure they have certain places they like and they like cold temperatures i mean bull elk once his winter hair comes which is right about now i mean it's the colder the better these late season hunts i always tell people if you're seeing cows and small bulls you're not hunting high enough you okay. gotta go way higher you know those i've watched them on these big mountainsides all around me and even when i hunted nevada in december where you see those cows, calves, and small bulls down lower, and then another thousand to fifteen hundred feet above that is where the bulls 
the mature bulls hung out. And they so, would just kind of ride that frost line up and down in that late season. So like right now, what's happening, we have a lot of snow and they're just kind of riding up and down that mountain. So as it gets warmer and thaws out, they climb up because they hate being dripped on. They hate mm-hmm. when those trees just drip and that snow melts. They, it, it's noisy. It's wet and uncomfortable. They can't hear real well, you know, laying around. The feed is is sloppy. And so they'll move up the mountain until they get to the frozen stuff. So they'll kind of ride that frost line up and down the mountain here in this late, you know, late October, early November until everything freezes solid. Then they'll move again to their final wintering range, which gotcha. would be a spot they stay all winter. And usually that, that's where you'll find their sheds is where they, you know, finish out. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that's interesting you say that. I was I was trying to explain this to people and they they <laughs> they got a little sideways with me over it, but everybody's always looking for these these elk sheds up in my neck of the woods way up high. And I in, in all the years I've only found one shed way up high and it was a fluke thing and I I we were actually hunting. I wasn't it wasn't shed hunting. Anyways, yeah, yeah, it's a great point. They they're down low. Um you must but, have lots of or you must have uh I I know where you live. I assume it's you don't get a lot of wind there in the winter. No, we you know it, it, we we don't get a lot of wind here anytime. Um, yeah. However, we do get uh, every few years we'll get an absolute monster windstorm, and it's usually in November or December where we have like sixty mile an hour gusts, and it does a lot of damage. But that only happens every few years. Yeah. So your elk will have to winter lower. They'll have to come down where there's less snow. Like our elk yep. go up higher. Oh, really? For cows, the winter? Bulls, they will go up where the sheep country is, where the it blows off. You know, the wind is their friend. And they will go up on those big windswept ridges. I've flown in from shows in, you know, show season in January and flown over some of these peaks. And they'll be up to 100 bulls laying on one of those, those uh, ridge tops at 12,000 feet in the dead of winter in January where it's all blown off. No kidding. You know, down them, it's, you know, 12 feet deep snow, but up where they're at, it just, they spend the whole winter up there just riding those wind currents and windswept slopes. And that's where they, they live, which is one of the, th- the reasons I think that we lost so many elk when the wolves were introduced is because those elk are really susceptible to predation. Oh and yeah. Do, you know, they can't get away. Because the wolves go up on top of the snow and the elk bust through and they're, they're trapped there. You know, win, lose, or draw on those windswept slopes, no matter what. They can't get off them. I have never I have never heard that. I've never heard that the, the elk came. Of course, I, I, like you pointed out, we don't have those windswept slopes. We do up in uh, maybe the, the far northern panhandle of Idaho, you've got some of those. Uh, but, but like you said, the, the wolf issue has created this different dynamic where it's, it's, uh, there was a few years there where the, the elk were struggling to find winter range between development and wolves and everything else going on. Uh, And the wolves were a new challenge for them, but, but you're exactly right. As soon as that snow hits the ground, these wolves become, uh, double, at least double more effective at killing elk. Uh, because it slows the elk down, you know, and, and they just they just can't move. They can't get away. And the wolves, they just zip right right across the top of the snow. And there's nothing these these elk can do. And so that's interesting. I didn't I, I've never I've never really thought about that. And and uh, 
the these wind wind swept slopes. For some reason, I'm stuttering a lot today. Um, and and those elk are hanging out high. So so with that guy, if if somebody were going, if somebody were going out, and you know we're talking a, a late November hunt, and and they're trying to locate bulls, they're still you know we're still not at that point where we've got you know twelve feet of snow or anything, but there's definitely snow up in the high country, and these elk are moving around. What do you look for? What do you look for to to identify um, or or locate these bulls? Uh, for the most part, you know the best place to start, the easiest place to start is the south facing slopes. You know those those elk will spend the you know the summer and early fall really gravitating to the north slopes where it's the thick timber, it's darker, it's cooler. Mm-hmm. But the opposite is true. When the temperatures drop, they'll start using the south-facing slopes, you know, because that's where a lot of the winter feed is for them. And so, which and those get a lot of wind too. So if you know which is the prevailing wind, like for us, it's always from the west and north. And so I'm looking for start on the south yeah, south-facing slope of the country, and then I'm looking into ridges that have a lot of exposure to the west and north wind. Because that's where it's going to blow off the feed. But also you need a good bedding area. So what will happen is they'll bed on the backside of a ridge, maybe on the north side where it's protected. And then they'll come out onto that south-facing slope to feed, uh, you know, during the morning and evenings. And so it's kind of, you know, you're kind of looking for all of the above. Sometimes when it's really, really brutal, you'll see them way out on a, on a south-facing massive you know, big open ridge, but mostly not. Mostly you're, they're going to be more tucked in where there's smaller south facing ridges, but close by to some really good, uh, good feed. Another thing too, Jim, is that they will really, really get in the burns. If you can find sure. good burns, that is really a good spot to find them, especially in that late season phase before they move to the final winter range that you know, I call it the, the intermediate winter range, but uh-huh. they will really gravitate to the burns. Like right now our elk are in the burns real hard. The big bulls are because the feed's good. There's a little bit of cover. Um, you know, it's exposed, but usually there's an edge of the burn that didn't get burnt or, or clumps of timber that are still existing to bed in. And a lot of those burns have springs in the bottom of them. So if you don't have a lot of snow yet, you just have the cold. There's plenty of moisture, you know, water running down the bottom of those those burns. So they have everything they need just right there. And they feel, you know, more protected in a burn too, because it's mm-hmm. not as wide open as a grassy open hillside. So so if so, you got burns in the area, really, really look them over good. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Cause I, I know of some um that are yeah. that are pretty p- close by. I like I like close by this time of year because we get yeah. <laughs> we I get agree. these Random. That is one of the drawbacks of this time of year. You can get into elk and you can't get to. I've glassed yeah. them up and you just can't. In some spots, you just can't get to them because you got ten foot snowdrifts. Ah oh, man, it's 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 actually really frustrating. I've got a great spot. In fact, um, I think I th- as long as the weather holds for the next week, I think I can get up there. But uh, I know I know there's. I've already got the bulls located. I located it, you know, it's it's not season right now. I was up kind of poking around for deer and bear uh, a couple a few days ago and and I know where the bulls are. 
Um, I just, I, I'm worried, like if we get any more moisture, it's going to, it's going to snow me out of that whole area and I can't get in there. But, um, those burns, I, I got a question about the burns. When, when you say, uh, a burn, a recent burn, do you, how soon is too soon on a burn? Like, for example, I have, there is one area where I know in the past there have been elk, uh, it's, it's, it's held a lot of elk this time of year. Uh, it burned and they just got it out at like, you know, the, the middle of August of this year. Is that too soon to consider that somewhere to, to, to keep an eye on? Or are you thinking like burns from two or three years ago? Yeah, it's probably too soon. You need at least the one growing season in it, you know, okay. it depends how it burned. If it's, if it burns super, super hot, there could be nothing that grows in it for four or five years. And if yeah, it was too little, and too much of it standing or it just has started falling over, standing deadfall, and it, they can't get around in it, it, it's not good. So you want one that, A, didn't burn super hot, and B, is a couple of years old, and there's just some standing deadfall, but not a lot on the ground, um, you know, because they, they want to get in and out of there. Um, but what will happen is those burns will turn to grass first, and then they'll start growing brush in it. And yeah. that brush is about you know knee deep is is usually about perfect when they really 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 like it but they can i've seen them in there the very next you know next summer the next fall yeah depending if the if you know i think some of it too depends on which side of the mountain it burned on like our south facing burns those elk really get in there quickly but sometimes that makes sense the north face it just there's so that timber was so thick to start with it's pretty uncomfortable for animals to really gravitate to it guy a, a, a few years back there's this there's this fire going on in one of the units i was hunting elk and this is early september the fire's still going you know and this it, it was uh, kind of you could see this the other side of the drainage where the fire was um from the dirt road this forest service road and i'm, I'm way up high kind of looking down and the fire's like real patchy. It's got it's got parts of the mountain that are just ablaze. Other parts are just kind of smoldering, and other parts are just haven't even been touched for some reason by the fire. And and the elk were just casually feeding in between those areas where the fire was not and where it wasn't smoking. Um, and and it's like it they it's like they didn't have a care in the world. They were just meandering through there, bedded down. Some of them were up meandering, feeding, uh, moving around. And, and this fire is just blazing. And there's uh, that w- at one point a chopper comes over and drops a bunch of water on it. It was crazy. I've never seen something like that. Um, but they, but like you said, they were not feeding in, in the actual areas that were still smoldering, you know, obviously because nothing had, had, has grown there, but uh, I've heard, I've heard a lot of different opinions about that. And I tend to agree with what you just said. You need a, you need a growing season in between. And so, um, yeah. Okay. I've seen them bed in a fresh burn, though. I have what? killed bulls that were black from soot from laying in a fresh burn that was from that summer. Yeah, yeah. Because it's comfortable. And I, I've I've actually seen them lay in one that was still smoking. Because huh. the, when it was really cold fall days, because the ground was warm, and they'll just lay there, um, you know, in the ash, because it's nice and soft. You know, they don't feed there. but And deer will do it, too. So, I mean, they, they're pretty... You know, they're pretty adaptive to burns. Burns don't scare them one bit. I mean, 
Yeah. A lot of them burn up in it. I, you know, I hear firefighters find a lot of, them, you know, bones quite often in there where they got caught up in it, but you know, it's not like it burns and they run out of the country and don't come back. It's, they just kind of change their world around, alter their, their behavior a little bit and use the burn to their advantage. And some of these burns up here in our country, of course, our timber grows way slower than yours. You know, after a, a good burn, it'll be wildlife prime habitat for better parts of 20 years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's the same here. It's not, it's not something that, that is just going to be a one shot deal. I mean, some of these burns over in Jackson, where I grew up and stuff, they've been productive for 25, 30 years later, you know, producing good elk hunting. I've been talking about Hoffman Boots for a very long time. You guys know that I'm a huge fan of this company. And it's not just the great products that they make. It's the story behind the company and the people that run it. This generational family of shoemakers right here in North Idaho makes some of the best hunting boots and pack boots and lineman boots and all your boot needs right in one place at HoffmanBoots.com. For us hunters, I highly recommend the Explorer. And I don't care if you're running in the 6-inch or the 8-inch or the 10-inch. Personally, I, I love my 8-inch Explorers. They've got the Vibram sole. They are totally waterproof. There's no break-in period. Guys, you can't go wrong with Hoffman Boots because you get all that without breaking the bank. So check them out at HoffmanBoots.com and use promo code all caps lock Huntsman 10 at checkout for 10% off and find out why I have been wearing my Hoffman boots for years and years. Don't be one of those people that have it in their mind that Savage Arms is the same firearms that your grandpa was running around with 40 years ago. It's not. Big game hunting rifles that you can count on. I love my Savage Firearms. I have got the Savage 110 Hunter, uh, and my daughter is uh, pretty happy with this 110, 110 Apex Hunter XP. Um, the AccuTrigger is a really interesting little piece to this firearm, and it's a new piece of technology that uh, if you've never tried one, you should, because it'll make you more accurate. It's it's a much easier, higher quality firearm than anything else I've got out there, and I've, I've got a lot of firearms, guys, and so if you're in the market for a new hunting rifle, make sure you visit SavageArms.com because I promise you, you're going to find something that is accurate, easy to handle, easy to use, long range, functional, just a high quality weapon that you could take to the field and have a lot of confidence that when it, the time comes, you've got that Savage backing you up and you're going to be notching a tag. Check it out. SavageArms.com. Let them know the Western Huntsman sent you. Thanks, guys. Yeah, interesting. I'd say twenty years might be a little stretch up up this far north up where I'm at, but yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, so so those of you listening in some of those areas, um, especially you know, as as uh, is it still? Did you say it's rifle season still in Wyoming for elk? Yeah, we have some of our limited quota. Some of the units, yeah, 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 they'll go to the end of this month, and then there's some that go to the end of December too. So. We have a lot See. of late season opportunities and we're starting to get more. You know, I was talking to outfit a friend of mine in Jackson today I grew up with. And I think that these, these elk are coming back because in Wyoming, I'm talking Wyoming in particular. Yeah. 
the herds have been doing really well in other parts of state, but I, these elk around and in Yellowstone are starting to rebound finally. Because are they? And we've been pretty hard on the wolves, and those Yellowstone wolves drift out of the park, and and they've been getting getting cold down quite a bit. And I think we're starting to see pretty significant uh, migrations again. Now it's nothing like it was 25 years ago, but it's it's starting to get back on an up cycle for sure. I I want to come I want to come back to that conversation here in just a minute. Can I ask you one more thing about November elk hunting, and we can come yeah, back to that? Yeah, you bet. Cause that, that's uh that's a big topic. Um, I, uh, talking about like, if, 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 a a guy were to go out, a hunter, you know, go out and locate an area where they've, let's say they've located some milk. They, they know there's some bulls in the area. There's sign, there's active trails, there's, you know, all that stuff. And maybe they're going to set up on a, on a trail system or watch another Ridge, depending on obviously if they're archery or rifle or, or muzzy, um, and and there's a weather front coming in. Uh, what do you have an opinion on elk movement as a, a a storm front moves in, whether it's rain or snow, uh, before, during, and after the storm? Does that make sense? The question. Yes. Yeah, I think in my experience, before the storm, there is some movement. Those elk will they sense it coming, so to speak, and they'll move to where they're going to be position for for what they need which is good food and cover and whatnot so you'll see some we'll say 40 percent of the movement ahead of the storm during the storm everything's pretty much locked down i'm not saying you won't see elk moving but for the most part you don't so maybe 10 percent of it and then 50 percent of the movement the big big movement will be after it clears off that's always the the number one Number one time, I always okay. if I'm hunting late season elk, I'm watching those storms come in, and I'm always loading up horses and getting ready to go right after right after it starts to clear or or the back end of the storm. So I'm there when it clears. But usually the the two or three days prior to a, a big storm is money, money, okay. money, money. And, and not all of it has to do with just the elk moving. Also, you have fresh tracks, and that's one thing we didn't get into too much is. I don't do a lot of elk tracking. I mean, in the fall when I'm hunting during the rut, I, you know, pay attention to where elk have been and whatnot. But late season, I'm always looking at those tracks, seeing how fresh they are, where they're going. Cause so many times I've found an elk track going along a hillside or a couple bulls where I could tell they're bulls traveling together. And I follow those tracks with my binos or spot and scope right up the drainage along the hillside. And sure enough, I can turn them up usually. Huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've never been able to do that. Slate also to see where elk have are and where they're not and, and how fresh the tracks are, which is a huge advantage because you're looking for a needle in a haystack, you know, late season. You don't, you don't have the rut and the bugling to rely on. And I think that's always been my issue. I, I this, And I've said this a million times on the show. I, I don't know how to hunt elk unless it's September and they're, and they're bugling their heads off. I, I really don't. <laughs> so I've just never really done it. I've always, uh, after the rut, the elk, I, I, I focus on bear and deer and, um, yeah. but I, I'm just, uh, I really want to, I, I really want to put in a good solid effort this year to see if I can get a late season bowl. Cause I've never done it before. It's a new thing for me. So anyway, do, do oh, you, you, one thing real quick, Jim on that is, yeah, is go for I it. I think a lot of guys, you know, that same, have that same mindset like you do. And I did too, when I was younger, but 
guys that hunt a lot of elk, especially around here that I know, will tell you the most fun elk hunt in the world is a rut hunt. There's no question about that. You know, that you can't deny the bugling activity and all that, but the best time to kill a big bull is late season. What, what would you, how would you define late season in that sense? Uh, Mid November, late November, how would you define it? Up here, it's anything after about the 25th October. Oh, okay. Okay. I'd say that's about the same here. Yeah. And through, through the rest of the year, basically. The problem with December is you get into December and the, the, the weather just gets brutal and there's so many times you can find elk, you can't get to them, you know? It's kind of like being yeah. a farmer. You want moisture, but not too much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. So, so, and those, those patterns where the weather patterns are coming in where you get, you know, snow for a day or two, then a nice break and, a, and sunshine and a warm up, which really keeps elk moving and out a lot is that's usually in November. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know because yeah, like I said, I've, I've got a, I, in, in fact, it's probably about time I, I cite this bad boy in, but I, uh, I bought me a new muzzleloader a couple of years ago and I've never even taken it out of the box. So, um, we're going to, we're going to try it. We're going to try it this year. So yep. we'll see how well, hey, you have a They're super killable this time of year too, is, you know, they become really patternable. Have you ever, uh, as like either a Hail Mary or just a, just to try it out. Have you ever, have you ever uh, used any calls this late in the year? Yes. Last fall, I was hunting with my friend from high school over around Jackson, up right on the Southern border of Yellowstone. Uh-huh. And it was the last few days, of October. And we got hit by a storm and it was really cold. A lot of snow, knee deep snow. And the rut was well, way over. And we went to the spot he goes to a lot, and there's these timber strips. And we set up, and he bugled, and sure enough, these this bull bugled and came out of the timber looking for a cow, and, and we shot him. No kidding. 29th of October. So it can be effective. Most For the most part, you use it to stop them if you're trying to get shot or whatever, but yeah. it can work. Um, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is bull elk can – can rut any time. It's the cows that determine all that. When my dad was a kid, he used to feed, help feed elk on the elk refuge in Jackson in uh, the winter. And sometimes in November and December, in December in particular, sometimes even January, they all those elk could be there on the feed grounds in the elk refuge and some cow that never got bred, who knows where she was, will come in to, to heat there in December and those bulls will puff up, start bugling, start fighting, go crazy, and get her bred, and then oh, wow. and go back to their wintering hat, uh, routine. So, you know, they 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 can always they're always ever the optimist for a hot cow. You know, so I'm not yeah. saying bugle one in November or whatnot, but you can get one curious to come out of the trees. I've had that happen multiple times by calling to them. When you say Colin, are you letting out a bugle or just a couple yeah. of mews? Either or a bugle or, or a cow. cow call will, will almost be a little more effective, I think. But yeah, a bugle will work too. I mean, it's almost like a curiosity killed the cat kind of thing. On some, it doesn't work every time, but it's definitely if you know a bulls there, you think one's there. Doesn't hurt hurt to try, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's kind of the objective with. 
with a lot of my podcasts, when they're when they're uh, hunt strategy kind of discussions like this one is, I, I my goal is to get the audience with you know offer offer some different tools that they could put in their toolbox when they go into the field and and i'm always i'm always searching for for these different tools and and i think i think you're right from a sense of you don't want to go out with your main strategy being to call an elk in in november uh but it's it's something to try if when other things aren't working and and i think it can work especially if if uh, I I know one way I I've seen it um, kind of materialize is if you if you know there's a there's a group of uh, cows and you're not picky and you just want to shoot a little spike to fill the freezer, man, cow calls will do the job in November. Um, so and I don't know I, I know there's a lot of hunters out there that, that don't mind getting a getting a spike or whatever. So, yeah. well, um, I would definitely carry some with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I uh, it's it's funny different different perceptions. Yeah, you know, I, I was talking to Brian Barney, and man, he's he's like he does not take calls. He doesn't even he leaves them all in the truck. And uh, I just I, I don't know. yeah yeah for sure. Um, can we get back to this wolf conversation real quick? Oh yeah, because uh, I I don't know guy how familiar you are with with my show, but wolves have been a big topic because Idaho has been pounded by wolves. Um. Yeah, you know the the state of Idaho, uh, and and I, I I keep speaking like I still live. I just moved across the border. I officially live in Montana now, um, but Idaho, I could still throw a rock from my my front door here and, and hit Idaho. So, um, Idaho holds more wolves by, I want to say four times. I haven't run these numbers in a while. About roughly four times more wolves than the entirety of the objective of the Northern Rocky tri-state region, which is Wyoming, Montana, and, and Idaho, there are four times more wolves in just Idaho alone than the, the objective for the entire region was originally set. And so that's what, you know, we've seen, you had mentioned that, that you feel like the, the elk are, you're kind of experienced somewhat of a rebound. And that's because of the management going on, uh, on those wolves coming out of the park. And I, I, I would second that on the Idaho side. We've got some guys that have become really effective uh, wolf trappers. Uh, we've got a few guys that are that have become really effective at, at hunting wolves, uh, long range. You know, calling them in. There's 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 a lot of different methods. There's a uh, my buddy Tom Schneider. He's with Stuck in the Rut. Man, he is just an animal when it comes to to hunting wolves. Uh, but these because of that, we we've seen some changes. I I, I feel the elk numbers are rebounding from what we were seeing in like 2015, 2016. I'm getting a lot more encounters. Uh, I'm getting a lot more um, elk on my cameras where I have cameras set. Uh, I'm getting a lot more bulls on, on the cameras uh, than I, than I was back, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. The, what is it? What is the discussion in Wyoming and centered around Yellowstone National Park when it comes to wolf management versus these um, these pro wolf folks that are almost uh, well, it's not almost they they are absolutely um, psychotic about these wolves. <laughs> I don't know how to put it other than they're fanatical about protecting wolves and putting them up on this pedestal over every other species, no matter what the cost is to the, the ecosystem. And a lot of these groups come from the Yellowstone area. A lot of them are based in Jackson. Uh, I, I, you know, and, and surrounding areas. I know uh, there was, I was coming through Cody a few years ago and there was uh, some lady at a, 
hotel trying to get people to sign a petition to stop wolf trapping and hunting um you know in in the greater yellowstone region and all that kind of stuff so i'm just curious like what is the what what's the the culture or the discussion there in your neck of the woods uh you know cody wyoming area surrounding the wolf management systems and and uh, and and plans there um around around that area that was a super long question <laughs> <laughs> well you know, around here, there we got hit with the wolves, you know, but not near as bad as you guys. Idaho got it with the worst of all the three states. Idaho, then Montana, and, and Wyoming got, you know, damaged the least, I think, or, or our wildlife, meaning our elk and our moose, basically. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. It's it's hard to – that's hard to say, too, guy, because, you know, growing up, when I we'd go to Yellowstone – you would see elk everywhere in the park. The last three times I've been there, I've only seen one cow elk one of those three times. Anyway. Yeah. And there, and I will say that those elk in the park are, are coming back. The, the numbers are rebounding quite nicely. I mean, we're nowhere near the peak where we were in, when they put them in, what, 1996 or wherever it was. But, but it is moving the right direction, mostly because I think of Wyoming's uh, wolf management plan where you know we we're pretty hard on the wolves here i mean we don't have as open and ended seasons as you guys do but it, you know they're uh, just like you guys there are some of the best elk hunters i know around here in this area who have the mules and all the resources to do it have really taken on to this wolf hunting and they've committed to not allow it a wolf quota to go unfilled if they can help it and they've gotten really effective at it so you know the wolf quotas are getting pretty close to filled each year and i think it's really having a, a positive impact on the rest of our wildlife because yeah of yeah yeah i, th I think i yeah. and a lot of them have moved this is my theory i have nothing to base this off of other than just what i know and have observed is a lot of the wolves that were gravitating around yellowstone have moved on their own accord not because of anybody moving them but searching for new areas so when they put them in there they went into a, a population expansion and they, and they hit a critical mass where there was too many of them just where we like where we are now with the grizzly bears yeah well then the wolves, you know, they're, they, they, they've evolved too. When they hit this critical mass of too many, they start drifting out to form new habitats and new populations. And that's how Oregon gets them. You know, Utah's got them. Colorado's got them. You know, they, they've caught some of our wolves all the way in the Dakotas. You know, yeah. and so these packs have drifted out from that core habitat, which has helped the core habitat. So the hunters are keeping the population in check, plus wolves leaving the area looking for new habitats. Th that has dropped the, the predation factor significantly over time, you know, on our, our elk yeah. and moose in particular. Because so when they released them... What's happened. When they released them into Wyoming, did they release them anywhere outside of Yellowstone? No, not that they'll admit to. So those, those wolves that have, yeah, yeah. Th those wolves that have, I have a, I have a buddy that lives down in Afton and, uh, he first started seeing wolves up where he was hunting elk. Gosh, what year was that? 2001. Two, I was still in the service. Um, 
And, and oh you, yeah, I was still in this. I, I know this because I'd gotten my very first email, and uh, this is this had to be I don't know two thousand one, two thousand two, or something like that. And uh, we started emailing back and forth. But he he was claiming, and I didn't believe him at the time. He was seeing wolves uh, down south, hunting south out of Afton, uh, and so those wolves that ended up in Colorado. Th- those are probably Yellowstone and planted wolves, and and so, did you say they've they've hit Utah? There are are there uh, wolves going in like the U in a range and they've had them in there. I, I don't know if there's any there now, but there's yeah, there's been been photos and captures of them down there. It almost every I think every neighboring state of ours yeah. we have wolves turn up in. So you've you've seen. Because you're you're from Wyoming, you you've seen this from the beginning to what it is now with wolf, uh, the reintroduction of wolves, and you know all the management and the the anti wolf trapping hunting folks, the the animal rights folks that um, get get fanatical uh, over over protecting wolves no matter what. You you've seen all that kind of materialize over the years. You've been in the conservation space a long time. You've been in the hunting space for a long time, and you know obviously with a running a you know these a company that does magazines and hunting content and all these all these different aspects how does does that translate to grizz for you and what's your gut feeling as to what the future looks like for grizzly bear management Uh, the grizzly bear is a whole nother monster Uh, if anything and i am not anti-grizzly bear you know, people think that I, I think they're really neat to watch or, you know, I, I don't obviously want them to go to zero. I think we have way, way too many. Absolutely. Um, in a lot of respects, though, the grizzly bear has actually been a positive uh, as far as a hunting is concerned in that it reduces a lot of the hunting pressure over here on our side with and Jackson, too, with so many grizzly bears. A lot of guys don't hunt, you know, as hard as they normally would in other spots. So it is has created where selfishly for where hunters can get away from, from uh, off the beaten path and away from the crowds easier because of the bears. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I, I could see that. I, there's a, there's a unit, there's a unit up here. I don't hunt alone in it because it's, it's full of grizzly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, that has been a positive, The, the, you know, the other positive is this whole bear thing has taken the pressure off the wolf issue. In a lot of respects, you know, we were, when we, them three, I've always said, sometimes I think that down at the Wyoming Game and Fish, they just said that they pushed so hard to delist grizzly bears so they could do whatever they wanted with wolves. Because all those wing nuts are off onto the grizzly bear issue now and not paying attention to wolves. And I really think that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that's had a positive impact on our wildlife because all those all the money all the lawyers all the uh you know the wingnut people you read about all the you know the kooky biologists all those people are so now focused on the grizzly bear thing that they they don't care as much near as much as they used to about the wolf issue yeah yeah that but it, but they, they we need to manage the grizzly bears. It's it's no different than the wolves. I I looked at the the math. These people are so foolish. They think oh if we don't hunt wolves, none of them will be killed. Well, that's not true. If we don't hunt grizzly bears, none of them will be killed. 
Definitely not true. They're killing roughly three times what the quota when they were going to take them off. You know, I actually have a a grizzly bear hunt here in Wyoming. Yeah. The game of fish and the federal government is killing three times what that quota was every year of worth of grizzly bears. Absolutely. Saving a grizzly bear's life. You fools by saying you, you don't want them to hunt. Hunt bears. Yeah. You're, you're actually costing them. Same thing happened to the wolves. The year before we uh, they delisted the wolves, they killed roughly two or three times what the quota is. Now the quotas mm-hmm. don't get filled hardly, and we're killing three times less wolves, and there's almost no wolf problems in the state because they're being hunted. It's It's a simple equation. In fact, if you look at the data logically, if you want to conserve wolves and grizzly bears and predators, hunt them. Yeah, less absolutely. Less of it's the same. Killed. It's the same with mountain lions. Yeah. You know, you yeah, yeah. It's the same with mountain lions and and other predator species where these states are spending way more money to hire people to come in and 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 cull these uh, these populations or kill uh, a tr- a problem mountain lion in the state of California where. If you just gave out hunting tags, a that money goes back into your fish and game wildlife management service, and there's there's dollars for conservation, and and you're you're keeping the 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 numbers at bay. There's so many positive things, and not to mention, and I feel like this would relate. You, you, I get a little fired up about this whole topic. This would this would relate to grizzly bears too. But if you look at the human uh to mountain lion or human to black bear uh interaction um you know inter- in encounters you know such as black bears in New Jersey where they're not allowed to be hunted or or mountain lions in California where they're, they're not allowed to be hunted you know those those things are a lot more negative than they are in places where they they are allowed and and so like like in North Idaho uh where we have in in some of these units we've got upwards of 4 bears per square mile these are these are black bear I'm talking about but when I go out and I'm hunting and I'm and and maybe I'm maybe I'm a little wrong for doing this, but I I do not fear black bears at all. Uh, they they have never shown any level whatsoever, and I have seen a ton of them uh, w- when I'm in the woods. They fear human interaction and and they get out of there. They've had a reason to fear them because we chase them with hounds, we bait them, we hunt them, we uh, everything. The the grizzly does not have that fear. And I feel like the longer we delay some sort of management through hunting on the grizzly bear, there needs to be some level of liability on the shoulders that promote that because people are dying over it. These grizzly bears have no fear. They're attacking hunters. They're attacking bird watchers. They're attacking conservation officers. They're, you know, the, these things, they're, they're dangerous. They don't, they, they're too densely populated that in in which you know grizzly bears they need a wide berth around other grizzly bears and and so this this idea that nature just kind of takes care of itself is totally negated by the in, in the modern day context of we have we have cities and urbanization and towns and freeways and railroad systems and reservoirs and all these other things that have broken up these habitats to think that nature can manage itself and everything's going to be okay I think is is just people living in in a in la la land, and that's why this grizzly bear situation is such a shit show, and and it's it's got to be addressed because literally we have people dying over it. What say you? Yeah, exactly. You're hundred percent right. I man, 
management through hunting is the only solution. Yep. And these anyone who says any different just doesn't know. They they're just fools. They, they're uneducated fools. Never been around it. It you know, is one reasons why. And they refuse to listen to any of them. And like you said, they just want it to be the Wild West and all oh, this is great. And these people are so out, half cocked and out of reality that if they get attacked by a bear, it's, you know, it was their fault. They blame themselves for being in the bear's habitat. Well, it doesn't have to be that way because guess what? Bear, bears manage through hunting. You're going to eliminate almost all the conflicts. I'm not saying all the conflict. Yes. there won't be some. There will be a few, but you're going to take it down just like the wolves have with the wolf situation. We're going to take it down by 90%. Same thing with the cats, all predators. All I saw predators. a stat the other day. California is killing 10 times the amount of cats, cougars, they were the last se- the last season they had a season. They are 10 times that amount. And what makes that worse guy is taxpayers. Yeah. The taxpayers have to pay for that expense. There's no revenue side. Instead of being a revenue source, it it Mm -hmm. is a taxpayer's expense. It's just like, you know, this kind of stuff drives me crazy because it's just the same common sense issue. It's just the same, like, how do you not see this? How do people not see this? It's, it's the same like New. I, I mentioned New Jersey and their black bears. They banned black bear hunting. Now the now the conflicts, human black bear conflicts in New Jersey are out of control, and the taxpayers are having to pick up the tab to control these populations over there. Where you compare that to a bigger, more robust population in the state of Idaho, we don't have bear conflicts here because they have a a, a healthy fear of humans. It's the same thing as. You know, you you look at cities that have a high level of gun control, have higher murder and crime rates than cities that have hardly any gun control. It's the same when you look at um the when when you when you take states that have a smaller, more efficient government versus an overbloated government trying to run everybody's every aspect of everybody's lives. Uh, whose whose economies are better? I'm sorry, those smaller government economies; those are those are kicking those big economies' asses. And, and it's the same thing when you look at the uh, way they manage uh, animals with all these um, PETA type folks in Europe. These these animal rights activists and and the number, the population numbers, and how how absolutely decimated these these populations are in places in Europe versus somewhere like here in the United States and Canada where we have the North American model or somewhere like Africa where they there's it's a different system than ours but it's still conservation through hunting how do people not look at the facts and data and 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 from a very holistic level understand that that trumps emotion that trumps your weird desire to protect grizzly bears no matter what the consequences are i don't i don't know i get frustrated with it guy it, it Drives, I, I could do conversations like this every week. I know I could too. And here, here's one another thing that pe- a lot of people don't really think about too on the on the, the hunting management side of in grizzly bears in particular. You know, when we were going to have the hunt, which we almost did, and some crackpot judge in Montana shut it down. Like, oh, I remember. Yep, was open. I, th- I believe the quota was 18 bears. Guess how many sows with cubs and cubs were going to get shot during that hunt? How many? Zero. Exactly. Zero. Because it was it would have been illegal to shoot a sow or a cub or a sow with cubs. Guess how many there sows and cubs have been killed 
through non-hunting management over the last 10 years. Well, I, yeah, Hundreds. I was going to say, I know of a couple here on the Idaho side or over Hundreds. there on the Idaho because side. When yep. they have a problem bear and she's got cubs, they have to plug the, the sow and the cubs because they can't do anything with the cubs without the sow alive, right? So exactly. they, got, they have to shoot all three. I have a friend who used to be the local bear coordinator here in Cody. He quit. He quit the game of fish because he got so tired. It was wearing on him so hard to all his job became was euthanizing bears. And I'm talking sows with little cubs, all of the above, plugging mm -hmm. them in the head, burying them in a hole every single day, day after day after day, every single summer and fall. Yeah. That that would wear on anybody, and and yes. it's the and same. Way that this is not what I signed up to do. This isn't management. I quit. Yeah, and this yeah. guy's a hunter. I'm not talking, you know, some crackpot person. I would. I, I'm a. You know, I I. I I think you're a lot like me, where you know, I my life is hunting, but I wouldn't want to do that every day. That that no. like killing killing for me is is not why I hunt, and that's 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 actually. Um, that's always what I, I I look at the killing of the animal. It's the transition point. It, it that's where it's it's it, you take it from the hunt to the work, and the and the work starts as soon as you pull that trigger or release that arrow or whatever. But it's the same what you were talking about when the most common uh, conflict between humans and and grizzly bears are a sow with cubs. And so when hunter when a hunter's out there and and uh, a sow comes after that hunter and that hunter defends himself with a, with a rifle or a pistol or whatever and kills that sow. Those cubs are toast. Those cubs are toast. And so it there, it's just like, you know, you think, Oh, grizzly bear was killed uh, by a hunter uh, defending himself. You know, it was self-defense, but, but what they don't tell you is, is most likely unless those cubs are, I, I don't remember what somebody told me once, but 12 to 18 months, you know, they they'll probably be fine. But before that, those cubs are toast. They're not going to survive without their mom. They're just no. not designed that way. And so it just more bear, all the bears, black bears and grizzlies, they, you know, the, a bear's life is very complicated. It's not like, that's why they're smarter than most other animals in North America. They don't just, like an elk, go, oh, there's a good hillside to feed some grass on, and there's a good, you know, patch of timber to lay in, and there's water in the bottom. We're good. We're golden. You know, a bear has to figure out life, and it's a complicated life for them to figure out with the denning. You know, their feed, you know, food sources change throughout the year. You know, mm -hmm. they they have to move a lot to find the right feed between summer, fall, spring, whatnot. You know, so it takes a, a cub two years with its mother to figure out all the ropes of life. You know, so like yep. yeah, exactly like you said, if you kill the, the sow before. 18 months or two years, those cubs don't have a chance. That's why they have to shoot them too. Yeah. You know, and that's a sad, well, that's a sad part. But, you know, management through hunting doesn't do that. Look at any bear tag. It, you cannot shoot cubs. You cannot shoot a sow with cubs alongside. I mean, that's exactly. selective harvest. There's no selective harvest in this other management plan these people want to do, which is just a free-for-all and have the government do it. Basically, what they go into the courtrooms and say is, we don't care how you how many bears you have to kill. We just don't want to see it, don't want to hear about it. Exactly. And we don't want to we, we don't want to sell hunting tags for it because it makes us yeah. look bad as That's animal activists. Somebody being. somebody needs to share this information with the uh the the, the, the 
the commissioners in the state of Washington for Washington. I can never remember the name of their management. Washington Wildlife Management. Anyway, uh, and that that was their big argument too. guy is is, oh, well, we don't want the sows um, getting killed when they have when they have cubs. And and then, you know, the the biologist comes in and says, well, actually, you know, it's like less than one percent of of the bears ended up being a lactating sow. And that's just really not an issue because hunters, you know, that's not what they're after. They're after a bigger boar, and that's that's usually what they're pursuing. It'd be the same thing with a grizzly. And uh, it's just, it's just, I always, I always try to compare it. Like again, not to keep talking about Idaho, but Idaho has one of the most aggressive, both wolf and black bear, uh, hunt management plans. Like you, I, I, I could hunt bears for almost six months out of the year. I could use hounds. I could spot and stock. I could bait. Uh, we and the same with wolf. We can we could uh, hunt and trap almost year round. In fact, if you have private land, you can hunt them year round. You can use in some cases uh, uh, artificial light for wolves. Uh, and we, even with all those tools, Idaho has still some of the highest, most dense population of both black bears and wolves. So riddle me that. I I don't understand how people don't see that the the lack of management through hunting is what has the biggest negative impact on these predator species. And I don't know. I think the next five years is going to tell us a lot on this grizzly issue. I, uh, it's, it's such a mountain to climb. Yeah, I, I really think I, I'm hopeful that we will get a hunt, but I'm my common yeah. side says I, <laughs> I don't think so, but yeah, I don't know what it, continues to look like because it gets worse and worse and worse i mean we have them in town now in cody oh yeah that's, that's crazy problem. you know it's telling the kids oh don't go out trick-or-treating after dark oh you can't go to the corn maze there's a grizzly bear in there you know and what happens is when they're protected like that that everybody's hands are somewhat tied to be able to handle them and so they're in you know fairly populated areas now and, and then what do you do right i mean oh uh, yeah yeah it's it's a it's a big big problem yeah just big just problem. just out of cody is where i have that picture of uh the grizzly track right over my i was fishing that shoshone river up up towards the park there yeah. and uh <laughs> i'd walked in first thing in the morning and i was the first one to make tracks because it had rained the night before and down fishing i don't know three or four hours and and uh, i walked out the same trail and there were grizz tracks over the top of mine so that sucker was probably in the brush watching me fixing it luckily i wasn't that great of a fisher back a fisherman back then and and uh, didn't have anything firm to steal but <laughs> um well guy this has been a great conversation I, I feel like we can keep this going forever so uh, i i know i've kept you a little longer than than i told you i would so um it's been a great conversation i we should probably do that again i love the conversation of of grizzly bear management through hunting and i think that it the, the, it's a type of conversation that needs to be had more often and tr- we, we need to try to get it in front of more people so that we have the masses the general public the you know the the folks that are not hunters and they're not really anti-hunters either they're just they're just uh that that in between most populous portion of our our uh, public out there and these are the folks that we need to convince and and um so these conversations i, th- I think they go a long way so i really appreciate it yeah i hope i hope so i 
I believe, like you, I believe that there's way more people on the fence than there are against it. They just don't, a lot of them just, yeah. you know, they don't pay attention necessarily unless what the paper re- writes about it. And they, they, you know, they don't, don't understand the full scope of the situation, what the options really are or could yeah. be. Yeah. Men. And the media doesn't help our cause for sure. No, so, they- um, well, um, any big hunts left for you this year? No, I think I'm pretty much done. I do have a, a deer tag in Montana, which, as you know, goes till what the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So I might pop up yeah. here just to look for, for a deer, but it kind of burned all my energy up on the, the moose. And then I killed an elk just the other day. So oh, good for you. The freezer is going to be way, well beyond full. So, <laughs> well, yeah. that's Don't that's good. More. You're having a much better season than I am so far. <laughs> uh, so, well, let's keep in touch, guy. I uh, look forward to meeting you in person. Hopefully, hopefully at the Hunt Expo this year. Yep. And um, you know, we'll uh, we'll figure out a time. Maybe we'll sit down there and record another one and uh, see if we could ruffle more feathers than, than we already did today. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on, Jim. I appreciate it. Looking forward to next time. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. See ya. You made it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Western Huntsman and write us a good review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.